Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre, based in St Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. to another Godpod, and um, today we're in a slightly different room. Uh, I don't know why, but we are in a different room, and um, we're actually sitting on sofas, which is a bit of an advance from what we normally are, but um, anyway, you don't know anything about this because you're just listening to it, but it's rather nice for us to be sitting on sofas rather than sitting on our normal hard chairs, but anyway, um, in today's Godpod, we have um, Jane with us. Hello. And myself, Graham Tomlin, but we also have a uh, special guest with us today, who is um, Dr. Steve Smith. Hello. Uh, Steve is um, our new uh, tutor and lecturer in New Testament at St. Melitus College. And you've been doing that for a little while now, Steve? Been here since the summer. Very good. Exactly. So I'll introduce Steve in a moment. But before we get into this, there's something very important we have to say, which is actually it's Jane's birthday very soon. Two days' time? Two days' time. Two days' time. Of course, we're not saying how old she is. She's 25, again. Not that there's anything wrong with old age. Exactly right. Um, but we do have cake here, actually. So it's cake instead of biscuits today. That's very Cake exciting. instead of biscuits. So I'm about to hand a bit of cake to Jane. Are you going to have some cake? Um, I've already had some, thank you. You've already you. had some? <laughs> and it's Lent. You're not having any. I know when it's Lent. When we're recording this, it's Lent. You don't have <laughs> to listen is. to it in Lent. <laughs> Are we all off cake for Lent? <laughs> Well, I've had someone, someone, someone's going to need to eat, eat the cake, so, you know, we'll have to do something about it. But anyway, we'll, we will tuck into the cake in time. Anyway, and our, happy our, birthday, Jane. Thank you so much. And our, happy birthday. our talking might be a little bit more sort of squishy than usual because of cake consumption. Cake consumption, exactly right. So, um, uh, Steve, tell us about your, um, your academic interests, what um, particularly gets you up in the morning, what excites you about theology. I love the Bible. I love... That it's a book that God speaks to his church through. I love it that it's a book in which he is revealed. I, I love it that it's a book that points to Jesus Christ. So it, it's I love reading scripture and, and immersing myself to try and understand what is, is being said within it. The places that I love in scripture are the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. It's the combination of the two that takes the journey through from Jesus's birth right through to the early days of the church, right up to the establishment of the ministry and the mission of the church and to right into the heart of the Roman Empire. So that's where my interests lie. Mm. I'm interested in the way that Luke tells his story as well and how Luke takes hold of the traditions of Israel and reshapes the traditions of Israel, the story of Israel, into his into his narrative. Mm. And when did you first get to have this passion for reading the Bible? The Bible, it was as a, it was as a child, really. It was, it was my teenage years. I started reading the Bible when I was a, a teenager and... Made a commitment to read it every day. It was it was in the process of doing that that I I fell in love with with mm. reading the Bible and to he, and to seeing the story of God that is, is revealed through it. One thing I've always puzzled me about Luke Acts because if it is, if it is written by the same person, we mm. assume it probably is. Um, why is it two books and not one? Why didn't he write just one rather long book? And why did it get divided? And is that slightly artificial because you know one bit falls into the Gospels part of our bible and then you've got obviously john's gospel and then you get acts and so it feels a bit more divided than it originally was do you think he wrote it in two separate sections did he write it continuously is it sort of a 
uh, a one novel in two parts? I mean, how do you how do you see it? Yeah, it's it's hard to to work out why he was doing it in two separate sections. I su- I suspect it's the pressures that everybody has with time for writing and these sorts of things. Nice length thought, of scrolls. They had the same problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Length yeah. of scrolls, I think, time. was a substantial reason as well. Yeah, though okay. the particular length that a scroll would be, and he's planning out his work to fulfil uh, the size of a scroll. Uh, financially, maybe as well, needing a particular patron to provide the money for for the oh. for the work and things may have constrained the amount of time that he had to do it. But I've got no doubt that he wrote them as two volumes to be read together and was intentional as he wrote the first volume that the second would follow. Interesting idea that Luke ran out of money and therefore mm. had to sort of stop writing it. <laughs> Luke and then had to get an extra donation to to fund the, the writing of Acts. Well, it's, it's one reading. There's some people wonder if that's yeah. who Theophilus is rather than being the person okay. that the book is written to was actually the benefactor that provided mm. some of the cash to fund the project. And there's a lot of research behind it, isn't there? So that's, I mean, that's another thing is he may have done the research yeah. in different bits true yeah um, yes no, absolutely and so you, it sort of reads as though the acts bit might be the bit that he knows best and some of which because he was involved in the story some of which mm. i'm imagining he was involved in himself and therefore yeah. could write from his own yeah. records and then he may have have had to write the prequel as it were mm. go back and find out the roots and of presumably there were different people he had to talk to for the do bits because writing the gospel, he'd have had to go back and talk to people who were around in Palestine mm. at the time. Of Although there, there are some suggestions within the story that the act bit was probably a bit easy for him. There, there are suggestions in the sea narrative sections where it changes from being a third par- a third person narrative to a second person mm. narrative. The so-called mm. we sections. So there are pieces yeah. in the narrative where suddenly it turns to saying we did this, we did this. The implication is that the person writing the book was there and present in the events as they were happening. And the person writing seems to be within Paul's cohort of people, so he was likely to be a traveller with Paul. So he probably knew a lot of the material from the Acts material, uh, uh, from Paul's testimony, from what Paul did, certainly the Pauline part of it. So I suspect that the Gospels bit was probably where he had to spend a bit more time interviewing people, talking to people and and doing more research. He he has far more stories about women and far more women's voices than any of the other gospel mm. writers. And in particular, he tells us much more about Mary, the mother of Jesus, than any of the other yeah. gospels. Do you think he went and interviewed her? Do you think she was wonderful still around? Thought. Wonderful yeah. thought if he did, wouldn't yeah. it? A, a wonderful thought. But You'd love to be a fly on the wall in that conversation. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. What was it like? Yeah. What, what was he like as a baby? Although not much of that gets in the story, no, does it? No, it's very, very restrained. It is it? very restrained yeah. indeed, but... Yeah. Uh, so why do you think he has this particular interest in women? Is that um, Does that reflect the church that he now knows? That's a good question. I, I, because it's, it's embedded in every level of the story, isn't it? Right at the beginning, having having Anna in the temple along with yeah. Simeon as a, as a proclaimer of, of Jesus, the important role for Mary, the mother of John the Baptist, Elizabeth, and, and the women that are gathering around Jesus and following her. It's, it's embedded at every single level within the story. And um, picks up again in Acts, doesn't yes, it? Yes, absolutely, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Was he married? I presume so. Most, it's, uh, I think culture would probably been quite a difficult thing not to be. I don't think anybody not, not knows. mentioned that he's, no. he has a wife. No, and again, again, it's an assumption that it is Luke that wrote it, assuming yeah. from elsewhere that this is an, an tradition that it was the person Luke, and there's not that much material uh, or information about who he was. Mm. So are you suggesting, Graham, that his wife said, hang on, there's not much female interest <laughs> here? <laughs> quite possible. You never know. That's right. <laughs> Yes, she might have read the other ones and thought, hmm, not many women in those. Come on, Luke, get on to it. Yeah. Uh, who knows? Yeah. All sorts of wonderful things you could conjecture on this and think about it. Maybe, yeah. maybe it was women that he spoke to who gave him his mm. testimony of the stories that happened. So uh, he was influenced about their importance in the story. It's 
but it's it's not just women he's he's concerned with other people that within the society of the time were outcasts and on mm. the edge of the society so uh, the the poor especially there's there's a large emphasis and i think so it's a large picture of what salvation means to luke it's bringing people into the heart of god's purposes bringing people into god's new community bringing people into this revived life that there is that's contained within the church uh, and i think he wants to show that that's for everybody and it's all inclusive so mm. so it do you probably think is reflects partly that message i think so do you think luke is actually the best gospel to give somebody first beginning to read the bible it probably depends on the person i think yeah uh, it's there's a lot going for john as a, as a gospel it's such a such a lovely gospel with with wonderful uh, stories of the things that jesus did these these miracles that jesus performed and uh, and the long discourses of jesus and and the the level of symbolism within john mm. just makes it and mark as well as a as a more simple straightforward quick gospel so i think it depends on the person yeah. that, that you're talking to Mind you, I've left Matthew out. Matthew's mm. wonderful too. So. Yeah, they're all pretty good, aren't they? <laughs> it, it does lead us into um, maybe our first question that we'll look at today, which is a, a question that came in from um, someone called Janet Mardell, who lives in East Sussex. And um, she has asked a question. Uh, she t- tells us that God Pods have occupied many car journeys for her over the past few years. So, Janet, we hope we haven't caused any accidents over mm. the years as you've been listening to us in your car. But um, uh, your question is this one. It says, when Jesus began his ministry, preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, as he was doing that, what was he actually preaching? Uh, Was it about his coming death? Was that the good news? Because if so, the disciples didn't seem to understand what what the good news was. Um, Did Jesus know from the start of his ministry how it would continue or did he understand it gradually as time went on? So I guess the question basically is what when Jesus says he's preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, what actually is he talking about? What does he mean by that phrase? Mm. I think it, the answer is probably all of those things to some extent. I think the kingdom of God reflects all of those aspects and brings all of those things together. When Jesus is talking to my mind about the kingdom of God, I think he's talking about not as a physical thing that has arrived in the presence among them. He's talked about the expression of the reign of God and the ruling of God in the world. It's more as a verb rather than as a noun. So the kingdom of God, he's he's referring to the reigning of God and God's action within the world. Uh, So what he's referring to is it's the culmination of this is the eschatological time. This is the time that's been looked forward to. This is the time that's been anticipated of God's intervening in the world, the time of the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the the bringing of a blessing to Israel and from Israel into the world. And that that is embodied within Jesus. And as Jesus is there, he is ministering to people. He's seeing uh, God's blessing brought to people as he sees them healed, as he sees them incorporated into new community. And as he sees God's message of forgiveness of sins and and of new life proclaimed to them, so the gospel, so the gospel of the good news of the kingdom of God is just that that God has broken into the world in His Son Jesus Christ and is bringing life to people. Now, ultimately, that is bound up with the death of Jesus, because it's within the death of Jesus that you find the climactic moment uh, of that kingdom of God and of the overthrow of evil. Uh, the uh, incarnation of Jesus Christ is the beginning part of that of that happening but it reaches its climax in the death and then in the resurrection of jesus uh, so it encompasses all of those things and is it um true what i was told when i was studying theology that that would almost certainly have been a phrase that would have been misunderstood um or understood very differently by jesus's first hearers that it would have been understood as a political 
concept. So, so the the reign of God means the yep. overthrow of other kinds of political reign, the the assertion of uh, the supremacy of God's own people. Yeah, I think I think that assertion. is very true. I think what people would be hearing is what they were expecting, and they were expecting a Messiah to come with a very political uh, method, probably even with. Uh, strengthened force to overthrow Rome. So yes, of course they were expecting that to be, to be part of it. And I think that's uh, part of the message that people would have latched onto. And I think we've got to be careful though not to take it the other direction yeah. and say this was just a spiritual message no. that Jesus is bringing, because that's part of our Western uh, divorce of politics and life from spirituality. And therefore, it was encompassing everything. It was a a, a kingdom of God that has an influence upon every single aspect of people's lives. Uh, so it wasn't, but it wasn't. It wasn't what people were exactly expecting. It was, in many ways, more than people were expecting, but not to direct overthrow of Rome. Yes. So when um, in uh, Luke nineteen, I think it is, isn't it, where you get the parable of the talents, mm. where where it says, you know, as they were nearing Jerusalem, and because his disciples thought the kingdom of God was about to yeah. come, he told them this parable. Does that therefore mean that they were expecting? Jesus was going to march into Jerusalem and by some political act uh, somehow overthrow the Roman rule over Palestine and that he was going to set up the kingdom of God in that. Is that, that what they meant? By, yeah, I, th I think that is what's that? being said. And there's, there's similar things said at the beginning of Acts as well when they're asking, is this the time for the kingdom? I think it's if you're looking for the ultimate time of God's reign and rule to be seen in the world, then you're looking for the promises to be fulfilled and the promises of the restoration of Israel. So you're looking to see Israel rising up mm. from political mm. oppression and mm. from economic oppression. Uh, you're looking to see the revival of fortunes of Israel. You're looking to mm. see the presence of God in the in Jerusalem, the, the mm. glory of the temple seen again, the descent mm. of the Holy Spirit, mm. all of this. It's all part of, of the package. So, yes, I think they would be looking for that. And That's the route would seem to be political. It would seem yeah. to be military, I would think. That's yeah. what you would anticipate, mm. surely, that it's not going to happen any other way. Because the interesting, interesting thing in some ways is what happens to kingdom of God language in the New Testament. Because and um, because I guess outside the Gospels, there's not a lot of mention of the yeah. kingdom of God. It seems to be very central to the teaching of Jesus, but it's not a concept that's very strong in the teaching of St. Paul, for example. I mean, I'd love your thoughts on what happens within Luke Acts as to, you know, in Acts, there's, again, less on the kingdom of God than there is in, in, in Luke. Um, I suppose... Before I ask you that question, um, my my one observation on it is that that one of the one of the things that happens to the kingdom of God language, if if it is as you say about the reign of God, that, that God reigning over his his world, and that this you know what Jesus is is preaching is, if you like that 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 in his person and in his if you like in the space around Jesus, you can see what happens when God reigns. In other words, the sick are healed. Mm. Uh, yes, the dead are absolutely. raised, yeah. the poor have good news preached to them. It doesn't happen everywhere, but in that little space wherever Jesus goes, you can see the kingdom of God coming mm. because that's what happens when God is in charge. Sickness is banished, death is overcome, um, the poor have good news preached to them, and that's what it is. And so it seems to me that you know the, the, the preaching of the good news of the kingdom is, is, is not just a, 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 a sort of... Yeah, I mean, it is it is a something you know forecast for the future, but you can kind of see it happening around yeah. Jesus yes. at the time. Yeah. Um, 
So, so I mean, I mean, yeah, um, the Luke Acts thing and what happens to Kingdom of God language? It's, it's not just that know? that changes as well, is it? It's references to Son of Man disappears as well. Yeah. Prolific within the Gospels. And suddenly, apart from a reference in Acts chapter 7, as Stephen casts gaze into heaven and says, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand, that disappears too. I think it's probably coming down to politics and contextualization, really that within an increasingly Roman world as the gospel has been taken, the gospel gets packaged or contextualised in different ways and different language begins to become uh, predominant. So language of within Luke, and within Luke's writings, he's referring to Jesus Christ as a saviour and one bringing salvation. Uh, there's a language of Jesus being Lord, and of the which ultimately is echoing back to the Old Testament, is using well, that, language that's, of That's of quite an interesting one, is, isn't it? That in, in the... In the early church, that that message seems to me that so often, you know, when you, you know, what's the heart of the gospel in the early church? It's 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 that phrase: Jesus is Jesus yeah, is Lord. Absolutely, yeah. And you know, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit, mm. and so on. So it seems almost that's a kind of tr almost a translation uh, of the kingdom of God language, because the kingdom of yeah. God language is God's reign. Uh, what does that actually mean? Well, actually, it means the lordship, the of, lordship of Christ. Jesus. Yes. And therefore, it's actually referring to the same reality, but in slightly different mm. terms. And of course, Jesus is Lord is a very political statement. And because... a blunt statement of the kingdom of God, I think, would be directly in the face of imperial forces, as, mm. as that was taken outside uh, mm. Palestine and, and written more widely. Of course, that doesn't get away from the fact that why is it contained within the Gospels that would have been distributed within that sphere too. Mm. Uh, but I think within Paul's message, I think it was probably phrased in different terminology that is subversive to empire, I'm convinced. Mm. Uh, but not directly attacking of it. And I mean, it's subversive of empire in that Paul have good news preached to absolutely. them. Absolutely. The, 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 the absolutely. people who are of no account to most empires absolutely um, become at the heart of, of what's going on. So the Beatitudes, again, that sort of revolutionary yes. um, theology of who, who really matters, mm. what kind of qualities really matter, is deeply antagonistic to imperial yeah. theology. Um, but as you say, not openly attacking it. Just, mm. uh, yeah. mm. Which kind of means, I suppose, just thinking of how that plays out today. You're thinking of the, you know, if the the church is a, a community which, in some ways, is is trying to display to the world around what what life is like under in the kingdom of God under the lordship of Christ, and um, the church does it very imperfectly. But that seems to be part of its calling it's not the same as the kingdom of god but it is in some ways an anticipation of it a, a kind of um something that embodies it but foot points forward to it and uh, and, and, and so it's, it's a vehicle for for bringing the reign of god within, within yeah, communities it works. So, yeah. so the way that most um uh, documents of, of inter interdenominational um documents talk about it as a sign instrument and foretaste mm. of the kingdom I've always found that those three really yeah. helpful words yeah. points towards something, helps to bring something in, but it's yeah. also a place where you begin to taste yeah. those fruits. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I mean, ki kingdom of God languages. I mean, it's just, just, it's, it's, it's. I mean, clearly is something that's absolutely is. Um, uh, Janet was saying in her, her her email, it's quite clearly central to the. Uh, the Gospels, but we've seen how it begins to be sort of translated and explained in different ways. Mm. But actually, it's as a concept, and you could even say it's something that's central to the Old Testament as well, isn't it? That idea of God's 
kingship over well, Israel it's, it's and kingship over Jesus the whole world. Jesus is building on anticipations that arise yeah. from the Old Testament. And, but I think, as you say, building into the role of the church today, it, it gives a far more healthy viewpoint on what the place of the church is mm. uh, and what the ministry of the church is and what the good news of the gospel is. And it does overcome sometimes, I think it does help us to overcome sometimes the, the division we have between kind of evangelism and social action. It's not, you know, because actually if the good news, the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom, it's the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord, not Caesar, not President Trump, not President Putin, not cancer, not sin, not death, nor unemployment or any of those yep. things. The final authority, the final say stays with Jesus Christ. That is good news. That no, nothing else that claims to be mm. dominant over my life or our society has the final word. Absolutely. Jesus Christ. That's why it's that's that that is why it's good news. And mm. that and so it seems to me that you know you, you both proclaim that you say it, and that's part of the gospel. This is what you're invited to believe. That you know to bring your life under the lordship of Christ and to to live in a community that's seeking to embody that. Um, but also, it seems to me that if that's what the church is about, then Church is meant to be a place where we do see around us, just like you saw around Jesus, the signs of the kingdom of God coming. You see the signs of the kingdom of God here and now. So every time a church sets up a food bank or a homeless drop-in centre or prays for healing or or, 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 or all those things, they are signs, anticipations of the, of the kingdom. And there's no contradiction between that and the proclamation yeah. of, the, of, the, of the, the Lordship of Christ. Mm. And so actually within that concept, you see some of those of rather tired divisions overcome no absolutely i think within the gospels that's exactly how the healings of jesus are seen i think john's gospel they're as signs of yep. jesus's divinity yeah. but within the other gospels they're manifestations of god's working within the world yeah very good thank you very much um janet for your question and um we move on to another one which is um uh here which is a very interesting one about the bible from um phil mccauley i have no idea where phil comes from he doesn't tell us but um uh, this is his question. He says, um, actually, no, it does tell us. He says he's a second-year student at London School of Theology. Very pl good place to be, which, of course, we used to teach, isn't it? I, you know, I used to be a student there. There you I go. A student there. there you go. Very excellent. So it's a really interesting question, this one. Um, and, uh, in fact, he says uh, in his um, email, he's been listening on and off for years, and it's one of the many gentle pushes that led him to a study of theology degree. So there you go. Oh, that's good. And he says, thank you. Have a biscuit for me. Well, it'll be cake today, actually, Philip, but... Um, <laughs> Um, we will have a bit of cake for you. Anyway, his double-barreled double double question is this. Has it been helpful for the mission of the church that all church members can access Scripture? So I guess the idea behind that is that in the past, in, probably in most Christian history actually, most individual Christians have not been able to read the Bible, either because it wasn't in their own language or because they couldn't read. Yeah. Actually, universal literacy is pretty rare in human history. books were incredibly expensive. Exactly. Writing was very expensive. So when you think of the Reformation period, for example, it's always estimated around less than 10% of the population could actually read. And um, obviously before that, when Bibles were only in Latin, even fewer people could yeah. actually just read Latin. So, uh, so that's the first question. Um, has it been helpful uh, for everyone to read Scripture? And the second one... Is um has is it always helpful to encourage Christians to find truth and meaning in Scripture individually? So there are some quite interesting things to tease out in that one. Yeah. So, um, Jane, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, one thought is that um, as far as we can tell, all the great Christian church leaders have thought it was really important that ordinary people should be able to access Scripture. So we know, for example, that Augustine in North Africa in the fourth century spent a lot of his time 
um, preaching and uh, unpacking scripture because he did think he didn't obviously he knew his his congregations couldn't read it but they still needed to access it so he would very much have thought of himself as uh, that that would have been one of his primary callings as a bishop was to enable people to access scripture um so i i, I would slightly dispute that there was a there were there was ever a time in christian history where uh, Christians didn't access scripture um, and our gospel writers and our New Testament writers are clearly expecting um, people to be able to access scripture uh, they refer to it a lot so mm. um, uh, so I think it's essential to the character of the church that it's a church called into being in response to scripture and it's quite interesting in, the, in that regard when it's um, I can't remember if it's in 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy I should know this um, where it talks about, you know, pay attention to the public reading of Scripture. Mm. And uh, you kind of think, well, does that mean, you know, the Bible readings in church on a Sunday? Mm. But actually what it probably means is that's the primary way in which people actually heard Scripture. Because, mm. of course, if you can't read it, you, the only way you can access it was when someone reads it publicly. Mm. And so from what we hear in the early church, it seems to be a fairly common practice that people would, would actually go to the church every morning if you're a good faithful christian to hear the scriptures being read mm. because you didn't have your own bible in your room to do your quiet time or your morning prayer um so you had to go to go to the church where the bible was being read and that was the way you access scripture but that seems yeah. to be a fairly common mm. practice and so that reference to the you know pay attention to the public reading of scripture doesn't just mean you know get the rotor right for sunday morning readings in church like we have it's actually this is really important because it's the only way in which the people can actually hear scripture read so so there i'm sure you're right there is that sort of there is a greater access to scripture even if not everyone could, could actually have their own bible and was able to sort of read it mm. on their own so then i suppose that access might have diminished um over history in the period in a few hundred years before the reformation when um most liturgical life including the reading of scripture was presumably in latin and therefore inaccessible. Mm. So there, but that, that was probably the, actually the, the period where people had least mm. Mm. access to Scripture. Is that fair? You're, you're the historian here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, clearly within the early church, you've got lots of different translations um, of the Bible. You've got the, um, obviously you've got the, the Greek being translated into Syriac and, and um, many of these other languages that are around and, and so that people could, could hear it. But then, of course, within medieval Christendom, especially in the West, uh, Jerome's Bible, uh, the Latin translation, the Vulgate becomes the official version, and um, there's a fascinating debate in the early part of the Reformation between um, um, William Tyndale and Thomas More, because of course William Tyndale was very keen to have the Bible translated into English, and Thomas More was fundamentally opposed to this idea, and uh, Thomas More was a fascinating character. He lived just down the road here in Chelsea, from not very far from where, where we are, but. Uh, and, you know, Thomas More, he was, I mean, in one sense, he's a sort of great heroic figure who stood up to the, the king and, and a great sort of hero of conscience in many ways. Um, but on the other hand, he could be quite vindictive and really pursued Tyndale and made sure that he was properly executed and got rid of. Um, and so in some ways he can be painted as a villain, but in some ways you can sort of understand what he meant because, of course, his great fear was that, you know, as long as you've got a Latin Bible... You can make sure that the theologians mm -hmm. and the church read it and interpret it. Um, and you can kind of control the interpretation of Scripture. And the interpretation of Scripture is clearly in the hands of the church. Once you have a vernacular Bible, once you have the Bible in English and French and German, anyone can read it. 
And who knows what they're going to come up with? They're going to come up with all kinds of different interpretations of the Bible, and the church will therefore lose the control of interpretation, and it'll all go haywire. Mm. And in one sense, historically, he was probably right in the sense that Protestantism has been this very fractious movement which always tended to break into different denominations and different interpretations. So, you know, I, at the end of the day, I don't think I, I don't agree with Thomas More. I think he was right for there to be vernacular Bibles, but I can kind of see the logic of his position, which I guess is the question, is the question or at least the position behind Phil's question. There are some downsides, are there? Are there some downsides to, to, to anybody being able to read their own Bible because of the huge varieties of interpretations people come up with? Yes and no. As with answers to all things, it's always <laughs> yes and no, isn't it? I think it's good that people can read their own Bibles, as I know both that you do. It's good that people can do that and engage with the, the scriptures on their own and to and to explore them. But I think there's a danger when that's all we do. And I think it, we need to read it in community too. I think we need to be subject to one another in the way that we read these things. Nobody has a monopoly on truth. Nobody has a monopoly on understanding. None of us do, no matter how intellectual we be, may we 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 may be or how theologically trained we may be or how spiritual we may be nobody has a, a monopoly of, of understanding and truth and it's as we submit to one another and learn from one another so ultimately it is still a book to be read in community i think mm. it's a book to be read with one another listening to one another and in the current world especially within the global community listening to our brothers and sisters and theologians and lay people from around the world and hearing the contributions they make that's the only way we can see where we're blinkered, where we have our presuppositions. So I like reading it individually, mm. but I, I think it needs to be done as community. And I think one of the um, one of the dangers, perhaps, of reading it just individually is that you're just looking for what it means to me. No, absolutely. And, and obviously it does, for every individual who opens that mm. book, um, there is something personal, God's personal um, uh, approach to you through those scriptures. But, um, but God is always building his kingdom isn't he God is always building his community so um, it, it won't ever what, what God gives you is never just for yourself um, so that sense of it, it uh, being a book that comes out for people and builds a people um, just seems to be part of how you read it which is why I think we're very fortunate to live in an online age where you can actually join in a, a, a community of, of, of reading scripture yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. As well as getting to some very mad places. Yeah, but there is a definition of heresy that heresy is theology done on your own. Ah. Um, in other words, it's when you just read the Bible on your own without any relation to any other yeah. Christian, without the rest of the church being involved in any way in that reading of Scripture. And, um, and you can kind of see where that definition is coming from. And I, and I suppose that maybe the problem is that we... You know, you've got almost two poles. You've got this very individualistic reading of Scripture, which actually comes from the individualism of modern post-Enlightenment culture, where we think of ourselves as individuals isolated from one another mm. in our own personal autonomy, you know, within with our own rights and our own uh, own perspective, which separates us from other people. Mm. And, you know, I have a right to, to interpret the Bible the way I want to, and if you don't agree, that's tough. Um and that's more a problem with sort of modern individualism than it is with the mm. meaning of scripture or the nature of the, of the church. At the other extreme, you've probably got a, you know, I suppose what the reformers were responding to, which was a, a very controlling body within the church that was trying to kind of close down the wider reading of the, of the scripture within the church. 
that actually the the magisterium of the papacy had become a quite a controlling um, you know body within the, the the church, which is which might be all right. But what happens when that body begins to read scripture in ways that are actually out of line with the way the church has always read scripture? And I suppose what maybe the place in the middle is is a is a reading of scripture which is done, as you say, Steve, in commonality in fellowship with the rest of the church but also with a profound trust in the holy spirit that the spirit is the one who brings who, who yes, leads yes. us to all truth yes he will lead us to the truth of scripture and will somehow keep the church faithful to scripture mm. as the whole church reads scripture so we don't just mm. delegate bible reading to you know a special cadre of bishops or cardinals or theologians mm. even and we're all involved in this task but we trust that the Spirit will guide the whole church to keep the church true to the to the heart and meaning of Scripture over time. There have been all kinds of elements of it, haven't there, that have been discovered uh, that are clearly there, but that needed voices that didn't come from the centre to help us mm. see see them. Mm. Uh, I mean that that the extraordinary emphasis in in the whole of Scripture on God's love for the poor. Mm. Um, yeah. We didn't notice that as a as a monumental church for really quite a long time, did we? Yeah. Um, because we were not poor, um, and yeah. and that's one of the great gifts of of um, scripture being read by everybody is that people find in it things that mm. that mm. that we all need mm. to hear, but may not notice without help from yeah. others. Good. So, Phil, fascinating question on that one on the Bible in. Our own language. Well, it's a good one to, to um, end with. If you're listening to this, it's still in 2017. This, of course, is Reformation 500th year, and so it's quite a good question to um, uh, to ask in this time. So uh, I think we've reached the end of our time. So, um, uh, Steve, it's been great to have you with us. It's been really good to be here. Thank you for your um, fascinating observations on Luke and Acts and uh, other parts of the Bible that we've looked at. Um, Again, happy birthday to Jane. Thank you happy very much. Um, I know it's Lent, but I think I, I think someone really ought to eat some of this cake. And um, so I'm going to sign off by eating a bit of Jane's birthday cake and saying happy birthday to Jane. And um, we will see you again. Or hopefully you'll hear from us again because we'll be doing another God Pod before long. And uh, until then, goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. was GodPod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.